10, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Listen, we are about to hear the eternal word of God. Look around. Everything that you see, if the Lord should tarry, will, will perish. The very seats you're sitting on will be gone. This pulpit will, will dissolve. This stage will be gone. All of it will perish. But the word of God endures forever. Anchor your soul upon that word. Brother. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther, if you would. Esther chapter 6 is the text that we'll be looking at this morning. In your bulletin is, is an outline. I encourage you to locate that and follow along. Use, uh, use those to take notes and, by God's grace, learn this passage. I'm going to be reading, actually, from chapter 5, 9 through 14, will be the reading that I open with this morning. Um, as it serves as the necessary background of the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning in this wonderful text. As you know, this book revolves around God's providence. And the irony is the song we we just sang um, is summarized uh, or summarizes quite well um, a couple of the chapters that we've already looked at this morning as this passage was, as this book was given to a people of God who felt God was distant And because he felt he was distant and not a part of their lives, even though they worshipped him, we know that this was written in such a way to reflect that, such that God's name is not even mentioned in this book, not one time. And it demonstrates how God's people felt about God, but yet the whole book yells out this glorious truth that God is intimately involved in our lives. He hasn't forgotten us. So chapter 6 will be the text we look at, but I'm going to begin reading again verse 9 through 14. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of Almighty God. Let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of our king. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, and the number of his sons, the every instance where the king had magnified him, and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther, the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which he, she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits uh, um, high made, and, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully to the king, uh, with the king, uh, to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to gather this morning and to worship you, to enjoy you. And now, Lord, to come at this time of of the, the service where we fellowship with you.
both in the open word of God and through this table. Lord, bless this time of fellowship that it would be rich for us all. Lord, from the oldest to the youngest, bless this moment, this, 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 this providential moment in our lives. We're from eternity, you ordain for us to fellowship around this chapter. Lord, bless this time. Feed us richly. Give me grace to preach your word with fidelity. And Lord, I pray that you would um, enable us as your people. Holy Spirit, grant us unction and power as we hear it preached, as we study together, that we might be transformed by your grace. Did it more and more into the image of Jesus Christ and thereby be strengthened in the inner man and woman that we might be men and women of Christ. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As Christians, it's our privilege to live in a relationship with God in which we live in hope by faith. Now, you will recall the difference between hope and faith. Hope sets its focus on the promises of God. Whereas faith sets its focus on the person of God. Now those two are bedfellows, right? They're by the faith, hope, and love, right? Those two, among the third, um, with the third, but those two are bedfellows. For example, Hebrews 11.1. 1, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Think about what, what, what I just read, what you just heard. Faith makes the promises of God in which we hope, faith makes those a fact in your life. The, it's, it's, the, it's the assurance that what you're hoping for is going to happen. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith takes the promises of God in which we hope and make them a fact. You see this in, in Sarah's life, for example, Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of her life since she considered him faithful. There, there's, there's faith. Who had promised, there's hope. Because her faith was focused on the character of the God who gives the promises, those promises for her became reality. They became a fact in her life. They weren't something that she she hoped would happen. That's how we use the word hope. That's how our culture is. It's something that she knew would happen. That's biblical hope mixed with faith. Okay, you see it, for example, 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul said, For as many as may be the promises of God... Those are the things in which we hope. As many are the promises of God, in Christ they are yes. There is certainty in Christ. So God's promises for, for, for the non-believer or for the one who doesn't understand, God's promises are things that they go, yeah, right. They'll either mock them or for those who don't understand them in Christ, they'll go, well, boy, I wish that would happen. I hope that that would happen. For, for example, we know all things work together for good. Boy, I wish that were true, but my current circumstances mean that it's not true. How could, God, why would you do this? Brothers and sisters, faith comes in at that moment to that glorious promise and makes that promise a fact in your life. And so men and women of old throughout the Bible times, redemptive history, lived in this world as strangers and aliens 
as objects of ire and criticism because they, they, they were living in light of that which they, no one else could see, but for them it was a reality. Not just for them. It is a reality. But they saw it by faith. Why? Because they saw God by faith. They're trusting God by faith. And so we read of these men and women of old who, who did such incredible things and received so much abuse for it. Romans chapter 4, Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed. Wait a second. Why would he believe when, when there's no reason to have hope? Because he, his trust was not in anything other than God's character, the person of God. And so we read further. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, that in which you hope, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. That's why Noah lived 120 years in, in light of a flood which the world would thought was folly. He lived there as if it was a fact. It's going to happen, guys. That is, that is the radical nature of Christianity. Or better yet, the radical nature of Christian living. We live in a world in light of unseen realities. And those unseen uh, realities um, affect what we do in the here and now. It enables us to praise God, though he smite me. It enables me to say, look, my life may not be going good. It may, in fact, it may never change. But I know this. God is my redeemer and he will raise me up. I'm thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Man, we may die in that furnace. But we know whom we have believed. This beautiful marriage between hope and faith. Hebrews 11. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance... And thus we read of how they lived. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, on and on and on. This is a description of the radical nature of Christian living. When you and I wed hope with faith in God. In fact, brothers and sisters, that radical living of, of, of believing but not receiving, suffering at the abuse at the people's hands who, who think that God is a mockery, a joke. Brothers and sisters, that's the norm, redemptively and historically. We live in, an, in, a, in a, uh, this, this anomaly that's been going on for the last, whatever, how long? 100, 200 years. Where life in the United States is pretty easy. And we can start to believe that that is what is, constitutes um, a God-blessed nation. God bless America. See, we don't have those problems. And brothers and sisters, historically, well, better yet, listen to 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, we read a verse like that and we go, you know what the strange thing is? It's not having peace and joy and easiness. Brother, Peter says the strange thing, um, I, I, am I saying it right? Um, don't think that these fiery things are wrong. They're not the, the anomaly. They're not, a, they're not something strange. 
Because the brothers and sisters as children of the living God, our hope and our, our glory, our citizenship is not of this world. It's with Christ. Now, how do you and I, in light of all that truth, that's the back story. If, if that's all true, brothers and sisters, how do you and I keep faith? How do we keep our faith fixed upon God? I, I'm, I put the quote in, I referenced a couple weeks ago, Rutherford's quote. Look for crosses, but in fair weather, mend those sails. How do you mend the sails? Well, one of the ways we mend the sails in Scripture, and give a lot of answers to that, but one way we mend the sails in Scripture is to look back upon God's redeeming work and to be encouraged by it. As the, as the Puritan said, Hebrew or providence like Hebrew is best read backwards. You read in the Word of God the various and sundry things God done for His people as they lived as Australians, strangers, and aliens, and it encourages us. Listen to Romans chapter fifteen. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. What Paul's saying is, guys, if you want to have hope. If you want to be embuoyed in your faith, then you got to look back upon God's redeeming work through the pages of this book and see how God, how he worked and why he worked and what he was working for and see that that's the same God who's working in your life too. And that's where Esther comes in such an important part in our lives. Esther is one such passage where we would look back upon and go, Lord, if this is how you work with your people, that gives you comfort for t- today. And chapter 6, as we've seen, is a culminating chapter in this entire book. I'll reference that again in a little bit. From this book, from this chapter, we see this black and white so well, how God cares for his people. This is the center of this book. This is the center message of this book. Now, you and I have seen, and hopefully you already uh, believe, that Mordecai is a type of Christ. Well, this morning you're going to also see that he's also a type of Christian. And when we talk in that language, brothers and sisters, that Mordecai is a type of Christ, the language comes from Hebrews eleven nineteen, a type of Christ or a type of Christian, we are, we are, ref, we are recognizing that there's more to this book than meets the eye. You follow with me on this one? This book is describing something bigger than just what occurred 2,500 years ago. This book is describing a struggle that has been going on since the very beginning between Satan and Christ. And therefore, I've I've labeled this chapter, because this, this chapter is the epitome of it, as the pattern of God's providence. This book is describing... More than just what happened 2,500 years ago, it's describing what's going on in your life right now, what's going on in redemptive history, world history, and what is going on ultimately, what's going to culminate on the last day. So we're here looking at this to feed our faith. Because if it's true back then, look how God did it then, and he did it with Noah and Abraham and all these other people, David, all it right? If it's true then, guys, brothers and sisters, he's going to be true to his word for you today. So let's look at the pattern of God's providence. What is ultimately beyond or be, behind what God is doing 
in your life and what he's doing in, the, in this world. We're going to begin by looking at the setting. And if I were to redo my notes, I'd put the first A and B would be subpoints under A, the context or the setting. Notice with me the setting of this pattern. Okay? It's very important you and I recognize this. This is the setting in which God's work of providence, this pattern we're going to see throughout in this text and thus throughout the world and in our own lives is being played. Okay? Notice with me verse 1. Uh, chapter 6. During that night, the king could, uh, could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they read before the king. And it was found written that what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. All right, we talked about this last week, right? The, this, this book is a chiasm, all pointing to chapter 6, 1 through 3. And so we saw that this is the key point in this book. And we saw last week as well that, brothers and sisters, Mordecai is more than just um, one Jew. Mordecai represents all of the Jews at this point. What happens to Mordecai in this chapter gives the rest of God's people confidence that the promises of God are going to, become a, are, are going to be met in 11 months when Persia turns their, turns their swords on the Jews, right? In that context, therefore, would you notice, look at the text as I speak. The king here is sleepless. Brothers and sisters, does that not remind us of Psalm 121? Behold, the he who keeps Israel neither slumber nor sleep. See, this book, op- this chapter opens up with the banquet already been done, the first uh, banquet, and we know already what's going on, that, that the Jews are going to be killed in 11 months by the Persians. And um, Esther has asked for one more banquet that's going to happen uh, today in terms of chapter 6 in about probably, eight, uh, probably 12, 12 hours, a little bit more. Um, but, but we also know that Haman, the previous night we just read, got so angry at Mordecai after the banquet, he now has raised up a 75-foot pole or scaffold to kill him upon that morning. So even though Esther's banquet's coming up, in which we know God is going to use that to deliver his people, nevertheless, at that point it'd be too late for Mordecai. He'll, he'll be dead. And hope fades. Hope fades so much so because no one who could help Mordecai, everyone who could help Mordecai, are sleeping. Except the Lord. Ahasuerus' sleepiness is ordained by God. But I want you to also see Ahasuerus at this moment is a type of God. He, He is God. He's the one who's not sleeping. God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. What was Mordecai doing at this point? He's sleeping, brothers and sisters. His life's in peril, and he's sleeping. And what is God doing? God's ordaining the situation in this context to deliver Mordecai even in his sleep. And if that's true of him, it's true of you. So we've seen, brothers and sisters, it's all repeat from last week. God and his promise chased Ahasuerus to sleep away. You got these? No, you don't. Um, in God's uh, providence, the king had his servants read the chronicles of the king as a sleeping aid. In God's providence, a couple years back, when Mordecai unveiled the plot against the king, he didn't get a reward. That was a massive slight. Can you imagine being a Christian at that moment, being him? 
Man, he did something that would mean money and wealth and honor, all kinds of privileges in that world. And he didn't get it. God, what is the problem? What did I do wrong? Why aren't you caring about me? Isn't that amazing? Yet God ordained that for such a time as this. That the king and his providence would, would, would say, I can't sleep. And rather than seek pleasure, he said, hey man, read. Turn on the, the uh, TV. That was the, the, that form in this day. Servant, come and read. And they read. And he turned God's, God's providence to that portion of the chronicle that's detailed Mordecai. And at that moment, he wasn't sleeping when they read about how he was slighted, or at least it was revealed. And, and so the king is riled rather than, um, uh, um, you know, pacified and put to, to sleep. And so he says, what, what's happened to, uh, to this man? And, and sure enough, at that moment, that hour, probably three or four in the morning, he says, hold the, you know, he says, stop, stop everything. We got to right this wrong. And that brings us now to the, what we didn't read last week, verse four. An accuser of the brethren enters into this scene. Verse four. So the king said, Who's in the court? Not because he heard him, but because he wants an advisor this moment. Who's ever available, get him out of bed. Get him here. Whose rotation is it? Get him in my presence right now. We got to solve this thing right now. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. Incredible. Talk about drama and irony. Ahasuerus is set on one thing, honor Mordecai. And as I say this, please hear this. Look at this passage from two perspectives. The text and the battle that's going on in the world between Satan and Christ. Ahasuerus' passion is, I want to honor Mordecai. Brothers and sisters, are you applying it? I want to. To honor you. Haman, on the other hand, is there for one purpose and one person only. One purpose only. I want to, want to destroy Mordecai, the accuser of the, the brethren, who in Revelation accuses you before God day and night. Incredible type. Now, Brothers and sisters, we've already seen behind this is indeed that battle. Satan um, is the prince of the power of the, of the air, and every non-believer is a pawn in his hands. 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul said that every non-Christian is held captive by Satan to do his will. And what is Satan's will? Revelation chapter 12, we know it. What is his will? What is Satan's will? Satan's will is to crush Christ... Revelation 12.3, or 12.4. And if he can't crush Christ, he then wants to crush Christ's people. Revelation 12.13. And thus, brothers and sisters, that explains Haman's irrational passion against Mordecai. It's, it's, when you read this, non-believers read this and liberals read this, and, and they go, it's just a silly story because no one would be that irrational. Really. No one would be as irrational as this. Notice the, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Go back. 3, verse 6. Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. 
the people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The people of Mordecai, here he's a type of Christ, the people of Christ. Satan wants to destroy them all. Okay? And then, if that's not enough, after detailing the incredible benefits he enjoyed, I just read this, chapter 5, uh, 13, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He had this ir- irrational passion to conquer the Jews. Where did that come from, guys? Because of the bloodlust that exists between Satan and Christ. He's just doing what Satan wants. So you guys see, there's much more going on in this, much more behind this than what we see. This, is, this happened 2,500 years ago, but this has happened how many times in redemptive history and world history, mostly in redemptive history, where Satan's trying to snuff out Christ by snuffing out God's people. Incredible. So brothers and sisters, what that, that's, that is a passion of the world when it comes to the believer. All right? Now, take that, put it on the back, back burner. Let's look at the passion of the world when it comes to itself. Notice with me verses 5 through 9. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him uh, come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to him, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Now, brothers and sisters, this reflects um, the passion of the nonbeliever, the passion of sin, is it not? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the bolts of the pride of life, those three things are the passion of the world, the passion of sin. In Mordecai's case, the boastful pride of life. So notice what he says, verse 7. Then Haman said to, uh, to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, this is what he wanted. Let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on, who, uh, on whose head a, cr- a royal crown has been placed or designed. So in Persia, they always would braid the horse's hair that made it look like a crown. You'll see that in Persian um, uh, statues. Um, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. And, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor. And lead him on horseback through the city square. And proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Brothers and sisters, this is Haman's passion. Worldly honor. Worldly glory. Worldly praise. Brothers and sisters, it is, it, is, it is that which is the, the, the spirit of the age in which we, we live. You see that? It just isn't Haman. It's throughout Scripture. You've got someone like Herod, whose greatest moment in his life, right before he died, was when he heard those glorious words, the voice of a God and not of a man, as he sucked the praises of men down before he was struck by God. The Jewish leaders of, of Christ say, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men uh, rabbi. Brothers and sisters, that, that's the spirit of the age. It's always been the spirit of the fallen age. Those in love with a, a religion, Matthew 6, where um, when therefore you give alms, do not sound a, a trumpet b- before you as do the hypocrites do in, in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honored by men. 
In fact, everyone outside of Jesus Christ, John 5, but I, know, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves, said Christ. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not re- receive me. If another shall come in my own name, in his o- own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? The idea of that is how can you uh, believe when your passion is set on having people glorify you? That's the age in which we live. That's... That's the politicians, athletes, movie stars, musicians, CEOs. That's what our age is is after. So it's in this context that you see the pattern of God being worked out, the pattern of God's providence. It's a context where, on the one hand, the world wants Christians dead. That's their passion. They're after Mordecai. Why? Because they're the vessel of Satan. We want Christ or Christ's people wiped out. In that context, that same context, you've got their passion, which is to be honored and glorified and praised. And about another chapter, Haman's going to want Esther to give him grace that he's not willing to give to the Jews. He cares all about his own honor, but when the time comes that, he's, that his life's at stake, he's not, he, he wants her to give to him what he's unwilling to give, what this, what this world's unwilling to do for Christ or his people. This world's at enmity with God, and you and I live in it. And because you and I live in it, we're going to be, as Mordecai, oftentimes the object and the ire of God's people. Now, in the United States, has it been that, that bad physically? But you look at the world right now, right? Uh, continue to, 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 to read the, the blood of, of the martyrs and all the other different things that you can read, right? And my, oh my, this world is, is, is attacking Christ and attacking us in ways we don't see it here, obviously. Well, it's in this context that we now come to point three, or C, the exalting of the humble. This, notice now the pattern of God's providence. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse you, that you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Man, you talk about a reversal. Not only is Haman not going to be honored like he wanted, Haman has to honor the very man he hates. Look at that text one more time. Notice, brothers and sisters, Haman must honor the one he hates. Understand biblically that this is but a foretaste of what's going to happen at the end of this age. Do you understand that? That's the, that's the reality behind all the types and the shadows that are going on in, the, in world history and redemptive history. The anti-type is the last day when God comes back and he gives honor to his son, And all those who sought honor, who persecuted Christ and his people, they're the ones who will not receive honor. Incredible. This isn't just Christ, brothers and sisters, but this also is everyone in him. Let me have you listen to a couple verses. Ezekiel 21 
talking about a false king who exalted himself amongst, uh, above God's people, we read, Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will be no more the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, I, I shall make of it. This also will be no more until Christ, he, comes whose right hand it is, and I will give it to him. Ezekiel is referencing a time when the proud, the peacocks of this world will be abased. And Jesus Christ and his people will be exalted. And that is why years later when Mary was found to be with trial, trial with child, this was her praise, the, her, what is known as her magnificat. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. Do you understand that is the, that is the uh, um, direction in which world history is going right now? That is the direction which all of God's providences are building and culminating to. That moment in redemptive history, God's, uh, it's, right, God's redemptive history is at this point frozen as he now is working out, we're working out world history churches, right? But when Christ comes back, it begins. And it ends, right? And it's going to come back with this glorious culmination where Jesus Christ and his people are exalted. And thus, notice the promise given to all converts, James 4, 8b through 10. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. This is a promise. And he will exalt you. He'll exalt you into the presence of the Lord in terms of redemption, salvation, justification. But brothers and sisters, James 4 has more in mind than just your justification. It has in mind your glorification. Do you understand that? This, that's where God, that's where world history, that's where God's providential dealings in your life and in this world are headed. On the last day, Romans 2, 9 there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So over 2,500 years ago, God exalted. God, when he wasn't sleeping, because he doesn't sleep, took care of his beloved even in his sleep, protected Mordecai from the doom that was his that very day. But brothers and sisters, you've got to see Romans 12 or Romans 15 that I read earlier, that that was written for our instruction. This is written for us? How can this be written for us unless what we read here, God wants us to see our future as well. This is what's going on in your life right now. Right now, you and I, are Mordecai prior to the time that the king says, hey, honor him. That's where we live. Now, without faith, God's promise has become vain. And so comments like God works all things together are for good don't comfort us at times. They anger us. Because we go, God, where is it? And you've missed it, brothers and sisters. God's plan, is, as pictured here, will be uh, taking place at the end. 
And thus, you and I, our testimony may be, like in Hebrews, we'll spend our entire life going around living as vagabonds and strangers and aliens, never receiving what was promised, but with our eye on it, knowing it's a fact. The day is coming, and this is so glorious. Brothers and sisters, the day is coming when you and I will be in glorified bodies, sitting at a glorious feast, pictured by that table, where we will enjoy Christ and eternity and one another forever. And you know what? I say this to my kids. I'll say it, and maybe you've heard me say it to you, or you've said it to one another. Hey, guys, just wait. Just wait. I promise you it's going to be different tomorrow. And it is. Brothers and sisters, it's my privilege as a preacher to tell you, just wait. It's going to be a blink and you and I are going to be there. As pictured by this beautiful demonstration of God's providence. And that brings us then to a very, very sad part, 12 through 14, the unavoidable end of the lost. Notice 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate But Haman hurried home mourning and his head covered. Brothers and sisters, if you were living in Susa in that day, you you knew about the decree against the Jews. You knew about what caused the decree, Mordecai. You knew about this, this struggle between Haman and Mordecai. And so for Haman to have to suffer the indignity of having everybody who knew what was going on, he had to bring him around and say, Thus is how God's going to honor the man who honors him. You know, honor. Oh, how horrible. So that's why he hit his head. He covered his head. He didn't want anybody to recognize him. He went straight home, 13, and, and, and Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, uh, Zeresh his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now they say it. You know, less than 24 hours ago, they said, build a scaffold. Now, a lot of people go nuts on this, that there must have been revelation. Maybe they got revelation from God. Brothers and sisters, who knows? I think more is just their people pleasers. They were just saying what, what needed to be said, but they recognize from the exodus, from the conquest, from everything, what's happened in God's redemptive history, that God's people, you don't mess with God's people. Okay? Well, Haman was messing with God's uh, 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 people. Um, so Haman received this. Man, this is, this is bad news. You, uh, but will, you, will, you will surely fall before him. Now, my question is, did Haman... Take that to heart, do you think? Do you think Haman heard that and went, whatever? Or do you think he heard that and went, whoa, I've blown it? Well, if he had, you certainly wouldn't know it the next chapter when he goes before the king. He doesn't say sorry, he doesn't do anything, but continue the game. And yet, brothers and sisters, you know what's crazy? By day's end, in four hours from, that, from this text, Haman would be dead. His property would be owned by Esther, the meek do inherit the earth. And Mordecai would have on his hand the authority and the power of the prime minister of Persia in four hours. Isn't that incredible? That's what's going to happen at the end of your life. Incredible. 
So we read lastly, while they, his counselors and friends, were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. I wonder if that might have been a relief to him. Think of it. He's living there hearing his, his wife and colleagues tell him, man, you're, you're messed up, buddy. You, 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 what you, this is bad. But the good news is, the good news, I'm still valued by the king and the queen. I'm still, I'm still important. Little did he know. Brothers and sisters, Haman, to use the words of a columnist, a columnist, Dave Barry, Haman is like an ant on the top of a large tire, turning. He knows something big's happening, but right before he's squished, the only thing in his brain is, huh? That's Dave Barry, okay? Not our Dave Barry, the columnist, okay? I mean, what were his last thoughts before he goes there? At least, at least I've got a a safe haven with the king and the queen. We'll come back next week. From this, brothers and sisters, I want you to see something so important that we miss. And that is, this was written for our instruction. Romans 15 was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This was written to give you encouragement and hope in your own battle in Christ. Well, how does it do that? If this is not picturing something that's a reality in your own life. you got to see, this just wasn't him. This just wasn't, name all the people. This wasn't Gideon. This wasn't all these different people throughout the course of the world, redemptive history, whom God made little into much, right? This just isn't Paul who was whittled down to nothing because God's grace is sufficient. Brothers and sisters, this is what God is doing in the world in which we live, where he's bringing all of world history, redemptive history, all way, all to this glorious, climactic moment where Jesus Christ is exalted. We are part of his retinue. We likewise are exalted. We are honored with Christ. We sit at a wedding feast of the Lamb where he comes up, First Peter, and gives us verbal praise, glory, and honor. I mean, on and on and on and on. This is your future. Do you see it this morning? In fact, this is where everything you must see is, is going. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll, I'll quote this and wrap it up uh, quickly. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they, non-Christians, are saying peace, safety, that's the context, right? Crushing Christians, honoring self, peace, safety, things couldn't be better. Then destruction comes upon them suddenly like the birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. What's their last thought before they get rolled over? Huh? But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Those are faith words. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, unite them. 
Make the promise. See that the promises of God, don't make them, they are. See that the promises of God are facts. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, look at verse 9 one more time in your, in your chapter. And understand this verse the way Romans 15 would have us understand it. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the King of kings and Lord of lords desires to honor. That is your future. That is your glory. May God give us the grace to by faith trusting in the character of of God to live in light of his promises today. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious passage before us this morning as it details our future. Lord, a a pericope, a, a, a passage which is reflecting a type of the source, the substance. Lord, this is a shadow of the truth of what's going to happen in the future that awaits us all. God, I pray you would imbue our faith, strengthen us, O Lord, as your word intends it to be, that an account like this would make us leave here so firm in our faith, knowing, God, you've done it thousands of times before. Certainly you will do it again in our own lives as we are your children, not because we wait upon you, not because of our faith, but because of your grace that promises. Father, give us strength. Wean us from created glory. Give us the grace, O Lord, to be a people who, who truly are willing to live and as, as vagabonds, aliens, and strangers in this world. For we know the man, the king, the God, who's the architect and builder of this world, who has prepared for us a place that our hearts may not be troubled. That, Lord, that we might co-reign with you, with the uh, authority of prime minister in the rest of eternity. Lord, what a glory that awaits us in Christ. But, Lord, it makes us think of those who do not know you, brothers and sisters, or our, our family brothers and sisters, uh, people who are neighbors and co-workers. God, we pray, give us the grace to be as bold to them as Haman's advisors and wife was to him. Lord, that began, of course, they didn't, but God, give us the grace to be a people who would open our mouths to share of the glory that is in Jesus Christ and the warning, the dire warning that rests upon this world, this age, as all are, are, are being ushered into, um, uh, moved ultimately into the presence of Almighty God on the day of judgment. Lord, we pray, give us the grace to share the glorious news of Christ. And we pray that you redeem, you call home those that are yours. But Father, I pray, give us the grace in this room, your people, to be buoyed in our faith, to trust you, to be strong in faith, and so to love you with a love, O Lord, that is is not affected by the trials and difficulties of this life, but a love which says, Lord, we love because you first loved us. Lord, we, we will love you 
unto eternity. God, we, we pray this in Jesus' name.